Welcome to Reimagining Atlantis. My name's Tori, and I'll be your host. Hello, my friends. I know, it's been a while. We've had, you know, the holidays and such, and I've just been so busy, I haven't even had 30 minutes to myself to be able to record You know, I gotta find a quiet, soulless place. Anyway, welcome back. And I'm still around. And I've been doing a ton of research during this time. You might actually be happy with these future episodes. I feel like I need to thank you each and every week. And I wonder how you're not tired of hearing my gratitude. Your support is what really drives me to continue to record. I've gone over just about every little bit of information that I have to continue on this legacy of my love for Atlantis. I do have still little tidbits here and there, and there are some things I still want to go over, as well as I still want to record the Timaeus and Critias for you. Nonetheless, I still feel honored that you come back and listen to me. Thank you. Over this last month, I've reread The Critias and the Timaeus about three times as a practice run for you all. I recognized that I had some more mythology to explain before you could understand Plato as much as I could provide for you. This episode, I thought I would go over Phaethon and what the audience of Plato would have known. Plato talks about it briefly, but enough that I think you should know the story. If the words comet, meteor, or asteroid were not available, how would you describe a ball of fire coming down from the sky? I'm reminded of my youth on the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, and I've always thought that it was a meteor shower. You know, the god rained sulfur and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah and all the plain and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. A general Google search of the Bronze Age meteor impact shows a scientific journal that in 1650 BCE a cosmic airburst destroyed Ta El Hammam, a Bronze Age city in southern Jordan Valley, northeast of the Dead Sea. Now, at this time, I do not think this event was the Phaethon event. But it does draw a specific vision in my head as to the description. Quote, Then God rained sulfur and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah and all the plain and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. This does sound differently than how the Greeks described the Phaethon event, but we could easily see how the two could be related. In scarier news, I found that there is a comet that orbits Earth that is also named Phaethon. And it's terrifying. I suggest not looking that one up. It's just another way that Earth will die in another horrible manner. Anyway, on with my show. My sources, as always, are linked in my episode description. This story starts out with the Titan Hyperion. Hyperion is a compound word in ancient Greek for hyper, meaning above, kind of like our modern day hyperactive or hyperthermic or above normal. 
Ion translates roughly to going. So the literal translation for Hyperion would be that high thing that goes. Hyperion was one of the twelve titan children of Gaia and Uranus. After Kronos got off Uranus's private bits, Hyperion mingled in love with his sister, Thea, and they begat three children. Incidentally enough, Thea is where the term Theoi, or divine, or gods, comes from. The three children between Hyperion and Thea were called Helios, Selene, and Eos. Eos is the goddess of dawn. She announces the presence of the sun. The best way to describe that would not necessarily be the sun, but our sunrise would be Eos. Selene, or Selene, was the moon, and Helios ended up replacing his father Hyperion as the charioteer who guides the sun across the sky every day. From his father, Helios is frequently called Hyperionides. Helios is often depicted in art with a radiant crown and driving a horse-drawn chariot through the sky. Helios was a second-generation titan, god of the sun, a guardian of oaths, and the god of sight. He dwelt in a golden palace in the river Okeanos at the far ends of the earth, from which he emerged each dawn, crowned with the halo of the sun, driving a chariot drawn by four-winged steeds. When he reached the land of the Hesperides in the far west, he descended into a golden cup which bore him through the north streams of Okeanos back to his rising place in the east. Helios was depicted as a handsome, usually beardless man, clothed in purple robes and crowned with the shining aura of the sun. His sun chariot was drawn by four, sometimes winged, steeds. Helios was identified with several other gods of fire and light, such as Hephaestus and light-bringing Apollo. Homer describes Helios as giving light both to the gods and men. He rises in the east from Okeanos, not from the river, but from some lake or bog formed by Okeanos. He rises up into the heaven, where he reaches the highest point at noontime, and then he descends, arriving in the evening in the darkness of the west and in Okeanos. Homer speaks only of the gates of Helios in the west. Later, writers assign to him a second palace in the west and describe his horses as feeding upon the herbs growing in the island of the blessed. The horses and chariots with which Helios makes his daily career are not mentioned in the Iliad and the Odyssey, but first occur in the Homeric hymns on Helios. Helios is described, even in the Homeric poems, as the god who sees and hears everything. Owing to his omniscience, he was able to snitch to Hephaestus about Aphrodite's affair with Ares and to reveal to Demeter that it was actually Hades who carried off her daughter. This idea of Helios knowing everything, which also contains the elements of his ethical and prophetic nature, 
seem to have been the cause of Helios being confounded and identified with Apollo, though they were originally quite distinct. And the identification was, in fact, never carried out completely, for no Greek poet ever made Apollo ride the chariot of Helios through the heavens. And among the Romans, we find the idea only after the time of Virgil. The representations of Apollo with rays around his head to characterize him as the identical with the sun belong to the time of the Roman Empire. The island of Thrinicia, modern-day Sicily, was sacred to Helios, and he there had flocks of oxen and sheep, which consisted of 350 heads, which never increased nor decreased, and his flock were attended by his daughters, Fetusa and Lampetia. Later traditions ascribe him to Fox and also the island of Eurythria. Eurythria means red, so the red island. And it may be remarked in general that sacred flocks, especially the oxen, concur in most places where the worship of Helios was established. Helios's primary city, to which he received honors, was Rhodes, where his statue, that of the great Helios, was said to be 108 feet high, approximately the height of the modern Statue of Liberty, from feet to crown. Sadly though, that statue collapsed during the earthquake of 226 BCE, although parts of it were still preserved. In accordance with the oracle, the Rhodinians did not build it again. Since 2008, a series of as-yet-unrealized proposals to build a new colossus at Rose Harbors have been announced, although the actual location of the original monument remains disputed. Clymene whose name translates to famous female, is one of the 300 oceanid daughters of Okeanos and Tethys. Clymene was married to Meropa, whose name means mankind, mortals, or dividing the voice. And he was an Ethiopian king. As a reminder, Ethiopia is a Greek word and it translates to burnt face. There's little information on Miropa, so I can't really expand on him more than that. Helios became enamored with Clymene, and in some accounts he married her. Either way, they mingled in love and had several children. Clymene gave birth to seven daughters and one son. The daughters as a whole were called the Heliadides for their father or Phaethonides for their brother. Now, it's worth noting that the names of the Heliodides are similar to the names of the Hesperides. The story of Phaethon is written by multiple sources. One of the most complete versions was from Ovid, a Roman poet, who is known for plagiarizing past authors such as Hesiod. Here's Ovid. Epapos, prince of Egypt, peer in pride and years was Phaethon child of Helios, whose arrogance one day and boasts of his high parentage were more than Ispapos could bear. You fool, he said, to credit 
all your mother says, that birth you boast about is false. Then Phaethon flushed, though some shame checked his rage, and he took those taunts to Clymene, his mother. And to grieve you more, dear mother, I so frank, he said, so fiery stood there silent, I am ashamed that he could so insult me that I could not repulse him. But if I indeed am sprung from heavenly stock, give me sure proof of my high birth. Confirm my claim to heaven. He threw his arms around his mother's neck and begged her, by his own and Maropa's life, his sister's hopes of marriage, to provide some token that the parentage was true. In Clymene, moved whether by his words or anger at the insult to herself, held out her arms to the heaven and faced Helios and cried, By this great glorious radiance, this beaming blaze, that hears and sees us now, I swear, dear child, that he, Helios, on whom you gaze, Helios, who governs all the globe, he is your father. If I lie, let him deny his beams. Let his light be the last my eyes shall ever see, and you may find your father's home with no long toil. The place from which he rises borders our own land, and this is Egypt. Go, make the journey, if your heart is set, and put your question to Helios himself. Then up flashed Phaethon, at his mother's words, to seek out his father. Eventually, Phaethon finds Helios and asks him, Helios, my father, if to use that name thou'st given me, leave, and Clymene spoke truth and hides no guilt, give proof that all may know I am thy son indeed, and forever in the doubt that grieves me. Then his father laid aside the dazzling gleams that crowned his head, and bade him come, and held him to his heart. Well, you deserve to be my son, he said. Truly, your mother named your lineage, and to dispel all doubt, ask what you will, that I may satisfy your heart's desire, and that dark marsh the river sticks, by which the gods make oath, though to my eyes unknown, shall steal my troth. He scarce had ended when the boy declared his wish, his father's chariot for one day, with license to control those soaring seeds. Grief and remorse flooded his father's soul. Then Diodorus fills in what happens next. As he, Phaethon, drove the chariot, he was unable to keep control of the reins, and the horses, making light of the youth, left their accustomed course, and first they turned aside to traverse the heavens, setting it afire and creating what is now called the Milky Way, and after that they brought the scorching rays to many parts of the inhabited earth and burnt up not a little land. Consequently, Zeus, being indignant because of what had happened, smote Phaethon with a thunderbolt and brought back the sun to his accustomed course. And Phaethon fell to the earth at the mouths of the river, which is now known as the Pados, or Po, but in ancient times was called Eridanos. And his sisters, the Heliodides, vied with each other in bewailing his death 
and by reasons of their exceeding grief underwent a metamorphosis of nature, becoming poplar trees. Then Ovid continues, Phaethon fell to his death from the chariot of the sun. Clymene, distraught with sorrow, said whatever could be said in woe so terrible and beat her breast and roamed the world to find his lifeless limbs and then his bones and found his bones at last buried beside a foreign river bank and prostrate there she drenched in tears his name carved in marble and hugged it to her breast his sisters too the three heliodides wept sad tears and while they stood bewildered bark embraced their loins and covered inch by inch their waists breasts shoulders hands till only lips were left calling their mother she what can she do but dart distractedly now here now there and kiss them while she may it's not enough she tries to tear the bark away and breaks the tender bows but from them blood drips like ooze from a dripping wound stop mother stop each intergirl protests i beg you stop the tree you terror is me and now farewell the barks lapped her last words helios stricken with grief at his son's death at first refused to resume his work of driving his chariot but at the appeal of the other gods including zeus return to his task. Philoshaeus, who's a late Athenian author from about 100 BCE, follows the typical premise of Phaethon's tale, son of Helios who takes his father to drive his chariot and ends up burning earth. He describes it in great detail in the extent of the catastrophe, putting more detail in the picture and visual representation rather than the action. The night drives away the day from the noonday sky. The sun's orb plunges to the earth, pulling the stars along with them. The seasons abandon their posts in fear, and the earth raises her hands in supplication as she burns. In the end, Phaethon falls from the chariot himself on fire too, and dies. The Eridanus mourns him along with the Heliodides. Some sources give a bit more detail and claim that the plains of Africa were scorched to the desert and men charred black. Zeus, appalled by the destruction, smote the boy with the thunderbolt, hurling his flaming body to the waters of River Eridanos. The Eridanos was a mythical river, later identified with the Danube, of northern Egypt and the Po of northern Italy. The name Eridanos translates to early burnt. According to Apollonius of Rhodes in his book Argonautica, while sailing up the Eridanus River on their way back, the Argonauts reached the outfall of the deep lake where Phaethon fell after he was struck with a lightning bolt. During the day, the crew of the Argo was tormented by the nauseating stench from Phaethon's corpse, still smoldering after all this time, and at night they had to listen to the lament of his sisters, now turned to poplar trees and shedding tears of amber. 
listening to this story instantly puts an asteroid or meteor into my mind. While researching this episode, I watched some YouTube videos on meteor events, and the sky lights up like the sun, and people describe it, commonly, as a ball of fire. There was another event that happened at the turn of the 19th century, and it is termed the Tungsta Event. Let's listen to some first-hand accounts. At breakfast time, I was sitting at the house at Vanavra Trading Post, approximately 65 kilometers or 40 miles south of the explosion. Facing north, I suddenly saw that directly to the north over on Cole's Tungsta Road, the sky split in two, and fire appeared high and wide over the forest, as Spinoff showed about 50 degrees up. The split in the sky grew larger, and the entire northern side was covered with fire. At the moment, I became so hot that I couldn't bear it as if my shirt was on fire. From the northern side, where the fire was, came strong heat. I wanted to tear off my shirt and throw it to the ground, but then the sky shut closed, and a strong thump sounded, and I was thrown a few meters. I lost my senses for a moment, but then my wife ran out and led me to the house. After that, such noise came as if rocks were falling or cannons were firing. The earth shook, and when I was on the ground, I pressed my head down, fearing the rocks would smash it. When the sky opened up, hot wind raced between the houses, like from cannons, which left traces on the ground like pathways, and it damaged some crops. And later we saw many windows were shattered, and in the barn, a part of the iron lock snapped. We had a hut by the river with my brother, Chakaran. We were sleeping. Suddenly, we both woke up at the same time. Somebody had shoved us. We heard whistling and felt a strong wind. Cherokin said, Can you hear all those birds flying overhead? We were both in the hut. Couldn't see what was going on outside. Suddenly, I got shoved again. This time hard, I fell into the fire. I got scared. Cherokin got scared too. We started crying out for our father, mother, brother, but no one answered. There was noise beyond the hut. We could hear trees falling down. Chekrin and I got out of our sleeping bags and we wanted to run out, but then the thunder struck. This was the first thunder. The earth began to move and rock. The wind hit our hut and knocked it over. My body was pushed down by sticks, but my head was in the clear. Then I saw a wonder trees were falling, the branches were on fire, it became mighty bright, how can I say this, as if there were a second sun. My eyes were hurting. I even closed them. It was like what the Russians call lightning. And immediately there was a loud thunderclap. This was the second thunder. The morning was sunny and there were no clouds. Our sun was shining brightly as usual and suddenly there came a second one. Cherkin and I had some difficulty getting out from under the remains of our hut. Then we saw that above, but in a different place, there was another flash, and a loud thunder came. This was the third thunder strike. Wind came again, knocked us off our feet, struck the fallen trees. We looked at the fallen trees, watched the treetops get snapped off, watched the fires. Suddenly Cherkin yelled, Look up! and pointed with his hand. I looked and saw that there was another flash, and it made another thunder, but the noise was less than before. This was the fourth strike, like normal thunder. Now I remember well, there was also one more thunder strike, but it was small and somewhere far away, where the sun goes to sleep. Your guess is as good as mine, 
but personally, I think Phaethon was a meteor impact event. What about you? Thank you so much for continuing to listen. Your support means everything to me. If you want to help make this podcast grow, please subscribe and tell just one other person about this podcast today. We are each our own hero in this story we call life. That means one person has the power to change everything. Who is the one person you tell today, hero? Let's help keep Atlantis alive, or at least reimagined. A new episode will be released every Thursday at 9 p.m. See you then. Wait, are you still here? Thank you. It's appreciated. Here's a clip for next week's episode. In Hesiod's Theogony, he narrates that the muses brought to people forgetfulness, that is, the forgetfulness of pain and the cessation of obligations. Classical writers set Apollo as their leader, giving him the name of Apollyon Musicates, or Apollo Muse Leader. In one myth, the muses judged a contest between Apollo and Marseus. They also gathered the pieces of the dead body of Orpheus, who was the son of Calope, and buried him in Levitheria. In a later myth, Thamaris challenged them to a singing contest. They won and punished Theramis by blinding him and robbing him of his singing ability. According to a myth from Ovid's Metamorphoses, alluding to the connection of Pateria with the Muses, Pyrrhus, the king of Macedon, had nine daughters he named after the nine Muses, believing that their skills were a great match to the Muses. <laughs>